This show is proudly sponsored by Coinspot.com.au, with the largest range of cryptocurrencies anywhere in the Australian market. With an updated verification process, you can now be verified using only your driver's license or passport within seconds. You can instantly deposit funds and instantly start buying and selling your favorite cryptocurrencies in under five minutes. Coinspot are giving away $10 worth of free Bitcoin for each verified user once they make their first deposit. Just go to coinspot.com.au forward slash BTC123. The Trader Cobb Crypto Show, talking business in blockchain. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Trader Cobb Crypto Show. Today, I have a fantastic guest, actually out of Sydney, Australia, for a change. Most of the guests are in different parts of the world. So I'm very happy to have Victor Jang from, uh, well, founder and chairman of Sapien Ventures, and also the president recently of Kuretsu Forum Australasia to be on the show to us. Uh, a massive wealth of tech experience, uh, moving a lot into the blockchain space now. So thank you, Victor, so much for being here, mate. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Greg. It's great to be on the call. Thank you. Mate, look, um, just before we get into the uh, the nitty-gritty and whatnot and get too conversational into the space of blockchain and technology, do you want to just give the audience a little bit of a background in your story so far? Because it, it's it's a really cool story and uh, it'd be good to bring them up to speed. <laughs> okay, thanks a lot. Um, well, so I'm a Sydney boy. I, I grew up in Sydney and uh, uh, my first job out of university was actually as an analyst programmer. Uh, at a uh, joint venture between Anderson Consulting and AMP, uh, right at Circular Key. So I, I guess I have had a, a pretty uh, technical grounding in, at the start of my career. And over time, I moved progressively more into technology and then business consulting, software, software sales, uh, systems integration, more consulting, uh, and um, interspersed through all of that. Uh, a number of companies that I've founded in various different countries. So um, within a year and a half of starting my first job uh, uh, in Sydney, I created my own technology consulting company uh, at age 23. Didn't know much about business, and but, but thought I'll, I'll just um, learn by doing. And within a year, I took that business from Australia to Western Europe. Uh, where I subsequently spent eight and a half years. And uh, over that time, I've worked pretty much across every Western European country. Um, and towards the end of that stint, I uh, joined a software company. And uh, that software company grew very fast and was acquired into IBM. So I got acquired into IBM. And I ended up running IBM's enterprise data management business unit in London for their capital markets investment banking division. So um, that was great exposure to work with some of the largest investment banks in the world on the technology aspect. And that's where I got a, I suppose, from my point of view, a, a deeper personal appreciation of how trading systems really work um, at the uh, steep end of town. Um, so I was, uh, Interestingly, I, I, I um, navigated that business unit during the height of the GFC. So Lehman Brothers was actually my biggest client in 2008, uh, which is a very interesting experience to say the least. Um, but on 31st of December that year, I, I managed to lead that business unit to achieve 410% of revenue growth despite the collapse of some of our biggest clients. So that experience taught me 
one important lesson in life, which is that during times of massive upheaval and change, there are potential for unprecedented opportunities. So with that learning, I uh, came back to Australia for family reasons with IBM. And before too long, I got itchy feet again, and I wanted to start my new thing again. So I founded a, 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 another tech company and, and took that from Australia, from Sydney to Silicon Valley, where I subsequently spent three years, um, where I consider myself very fortunate to have been mixed with as a with a bunch of people that I consider my mentors in uh, technology investing and venture venture capital craft. And uh, these people, some of these people have invested in my company and remains my business partner to this day. So on the back of that, in 2015, we decided to co-found a technology-focused venture capital firm called Sapien Ventures. Um, fast forward to today, Sapien Ventures is uh, three years old. Uh, actually, just as of last month, and we're now onto our fifth fund in three years. Um, and Sapien Ventures' focus is primarily on fintech, online marketplaces, and blockchain. Uh, blockchain, because we feel that uh, some of the biggest opportunities of unprecedented scale in terms of disruption and, and potential for changing people's lives and societies lies in blockchain. And financial services, as we see it, uh, given our, our experience in the industry, is about to be completely re reinvented, uh, in our view, through blockchain technologies. And so we feel that this is a very, very exciting time to be uh, doing the sort of things that um, we're involved in. And as part of that, we have um, a team in Silicon Valley, Sydney, Melbourne, Shanghai, and recently Beijing. So I travel frequently throughout those three continents and uh, we see very, very interesting deal flow, uh, which we, where possible, want to uh, bring that to bear with uh, Australasian and, and regional investors. So um, I'll, I'll stop the, right there for now. Uh, we can talk about Caressa Forum in a moment. Sounds good. I mean, look, I guess I'm really interested in uh, Sapien Ventures. I mean, obviously, as you say, you know, it's a, it's a tech visa. You, you invest into projects. Now, what I, I've seen, I believe that I've seen anyway, in the especially in the space of this traditional uh, money coming in, the, the the next influx of institutional money that many are talking about in the space at the moment is, you know, are we seeing it coming in through exchanges? No, the answer is no. We're seeing it starting to seep in through boutique type funds such as Sapien. And when I say boutique, I mean, you know, it doesn't really matter what it's worth. It's, it's you know, it's... We are boutique. That's okay. We're three years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it is quite, you know, three years in this space is a long, long time. <laughs> you'll be, uh, you'll be a, uh, you know, one of the originals in about three years time, one of the first, <laughs> you know, breaking new ground. But I mean, I guess from my point of view, as well, as the um, the interested views of the listeners, what sort of things do you guys look for? Because I know that when it comes to entering into the market, a lot of these funds nowadays are looking at not just having you know seed capital, but obviously they want to have an equity stake as well within in the company. You were talking about your interest and your expertise. Uh, personally, being in the financial services sector and how banking's being sort of revolutionised to a certain extent, with them kicking and screaming all the way, um, where do you see for Sapien Ventures? Is there any? Are you focused primarily on the banking sector, or are you looking for different things? 
there's several questions in there, so I'll try to unpack yeah, yeah. them uh, <laughs> one by one. Um, from our perspective, we are looking for uh, technology trends that can uh, reshape either industry or society or um, markets around the world. So we're le- looking for highly scalable, impactful technologies. Um, and certainly in financial services, there are a, a lot of technologies, not only blockchain, I should mention, and Sapien Ventures does not only only focus on blockchain ventures. We also do traditional, what I consider traditional equity, pure equity investments in things like robo-advisory and, and things like that. Um, but we feel that many areas of financial services, whether it's payments, retail, corporate, wealth, super, uh, you know, superannuation as an industry in itself, uh, advice, uh, as well as uh, uh, insurance, they, their business models are fundamentally uh, invented pre-internet and uh, certainly pre-blockchain. And a lot of the things, when you, you, when you look at it with technology aspects, uh, with, a, uh, with a different lens, let's say, you know, with a lens that, um, for, for example, I'll give one quick anecdotal example. When you consider the nature of blockchain that allows for trustless and permissionless transactions to happen between two parties that don't know each other, you know, they don't need to have an intermediary to establish trust. They can just f- uh, rely on the technology, which is inherently immutable, and transparent in a public chain anyway, uh, to be that layer of trust that fundamentally simplifies the traditional financial services stack. And we think that a lot of the infrastructure in how the modern financial world is created, how it came about, if it was reinterpreted through those lens, many layers will be largely redundant. So we think that that is phenomenally interesting and given my earlier uh, comment about you know during the GFC unprecedented upheaval also represented unprecedented opportunities we think there are many many uh, opportunities when there are trends macroeconomic trends as well as technological trends such as these that um, that investors can unpick so we look for um, transformational technology uh, propositions that can fundamentally change uh, an industry. And we would typically uh, come up with a hypothesis of, okay, where in the market, uh, I mean, let's let's continue with a financial services uh, vertical as a, for a moment, even though this is not our only focus, where in insurance or wealth management, for example, uh, or, or or retail banking, such as mortgages, can there be new opportunities for a reinvented business model? And then once we uh, identify those, what we consider problem areas, then we go out to the market and and start scouting for uh, solutions, i.e. technology ventures that can potentially solve for those problems. So we have a hypothesis before we look for any specific deals. And when we find deals, then we look at team, where whether a track record has been, the credentials, ability to execute, whether I'm in a 
life cycle, their product development, maturity, are they revenue generating or not? We would typically prefer companies that are revenue generating. Uh, it's not really about the money, it's more about market validation. So for us, it's really important to validate that you are solving a problem that someone is willing to pay money to, for you to solve. Uh, it doesn't have to be a big amount, but if it's zero, then it's almost unquantifiable risk from an investor's point of view. Well, that's that's interesting that you should say that. And that, um, I mean, from from my point of view, I, I certainly don't look at myself being sort of a crypto or blockchain fundamental expert. I, I never build myself to be that. But the way I invest in the space, because obviously I invest and I trade, is the same sort of thing. I'm looking for I'm looking for companies that are actually transacting based on their product or their platform. I, look, I don't mind if they're not making lots and lots and lots of money because I'm investing. I'm hoping that they're not really right now because I'm hoping that they will. That's where the opportunity is, right? <laughs> exactly. But I want to see that the the concept. I don't want to see. I don't, and I also don't want to see a business that's there that, that is trying to solve a problem that doesn't yet exist. Um, you know, sending somebody to the moon, for example, that's that. You know, yay, good work. You can do that. Excellent. But but why do we need to do that? How many people are going to do the demand? Correct. Do, do, do we need like would this business exist? Um, you know, if it wasn't for the word blockchain being involved in it and having a bunch of people crowdsourcing this investment, probably not. So therefore, I don't want to be involved in that either. That's a great comment. It's a, it's a logical response. I mean, having a look at uh, the Sapien Ventures, you know, your track record, it looks, looks as though you've been pretty bloody successful with 150% to 1,200% on, uh, on your deals so far. Is that sort of getting in from the beginning and helping to, I guess, direct them? Are you taking positions on boards? Are you following a completely traditional sort of sense? Or are you sort of happy to invest, stand back, and uh, use your resources as we all can whenever we've got the opportunity to invest in something and help that project, it makes sense to do. So are, are you guys trying to steer these companies or are you able to just invest and step back or is it a bit of both? Right. So that, that's a great question. So what I've learned in Silicon Valley is that great venture capital investment is about venture advisory and uh, to coin a phrase used by uh, Vinod Kostler, founder of Kostler Ventures and Sun Microsystems, one of my idols, um, his position is that venture capital is about venture assistance. So it's definitely not about passivity. We proud our, pride ourselves to be an active investor. Uh, if we come up with an investment hypothesis, we think we understand a problem, and then when we find a, a potential solution for that problem, uh, we get all in or we, we won't get in. So one of our investment mandates is, yes, we almost always will ask for a board seat with our investment. Uh, we prefer to, especially if it's early rounds, uh, Series A or thereabouts, uh, we prefer to lead a round uh, rather than follow. Uh, we are, are, of course, high conviction investor. We are quite comfortable if we are the only investor in a round uh, based on our hypothesis and our conviction. But once we are in, it's about sitting on the board, opening our entire uh, channels and uh, expertise, and we're constantly ramping up our advisory board to help our portfolio companies uh, in order to help them succeed. And in doing so, we believe we co-create the financial destiny together with our entrepreneurs. So I think that's a really important thing uh, that I want to want to just uh, emphasize. And I think this is largely true of many Silicon Valley-esque VC firms. They're never passive investors. 
Well, it, ma- it makes sense too from somebody who's pitching a project and getting investment. I mean, look, if I'm if I'm going to weigh up, you know, one investor with another investor, and one saying I want to be t- completely silent, well, then I've got to look at the pros and cons of that. I.e., I'm in complete control here, and they're just giving me money. The other investor, I look at it and go, well, hang on, this person's also looking to invest. They want to have a board seat, so they want to be involved. They've got a lot of contacts. They can help to grow us, and it's a partnership that we're willing to have to to, to help us to achieve our goals uh, in hopefully a shorter possible time, but more or less just help us to get the foot in the door and. I think, um, you know, running a good business is not just about having complete control. It's about understanding when you need help and also understanding that, you know, I haven't got all the answers, but if I've got enough people to pick up the phone that have it, it makes my journey a hell of a lot easier. So it's, uh, it, it, it kind of fits. I can understand how it fits. The shoe fits on both feet in, to a certain extent. And you've obviously done it very well. And um, I mean, you've obviously got a lot of ties to Silicon Valley, which we've which we've discussed extensively. I mean, more so, you know. Sorry for for your career and with with Saipan and how you've how you've sort of bounced around the world. As far as Asia is concerned, um, look, I'm speaking with a lot of companies out of Asia, a lot of people. Uh, in Asia, different parts of Asia, of course, there's a lot of bloody countries in Asia, but it, there seems to be a huge ecosystem, particularly in the blockchain space there right now with many projects that are occurring that we don't even in the Western world have any idea of. Now, it does appear right now that there is, uh, particularly in Australia, because uh, I, can, I can speak more so from my experience than others, but particularly in Australia, a lot of um, uh, foreign projects, especially coming out of Asia and China, to be more specific, wanting to get an arm into Australia. It's a small market, but for some reason they want to be here. Maybe it's just a diversify. I'm not quite sure. But what are you seeing uh, in that um, area as as being really, really interesting, not just for Australia in particular, but for the community as a whole? Yeah, I think these are excellent questions. So um, there's, I think, two parts to that. One is you're absolutely right. A lot of the pioneering uh, movements in blockchain, if we are to talk about blockchain or even fintech at large, is coming out of Asia and particularly greater China. So to take mobile payments as one example, uh, it was recently quoted by Forbes and the World Bank that China eclipsed the rest of the world in terms of uh, mobile-based payments. Uh, I think between uh, WeChat Pay and Alipay, they processed um, 1.6 trillion USD just in the last year alone. Um, and uh, that country being the second largest economy and the most populous is largely becoming cashless. So, and, and that happened very, very quickly within the space of three to five years, right? And then if we look at blockchain in particular, uh, China has produced some of the world's uh, largest mining bitcoin or, or blockchain mining operators uh is home to or original um source country of some of the world's largest crypto exchanges um as well as um some of the largest amounts of funding into some well-known uh projects such as eos which allegedly cobbled together four billion dollars of recent past so if we look at that, um, you know, there are huge uh, ecosystems, number of funds, uh, funds with a lot of money um, investing into blockchain uh, in that particular market. So that's a phenomenal um, market to, to at least be um, aware of. I think it's just too big to ignore. Now, in relation to Australia, there's actually a very, very interesting dynamic that's uh, emerged in the not too uh, 
distant past. So as many people may know, China, as of September last year, have uh, publicly banned ICOs as a medium of uh, capital raising. Um, within the same month, also September last year, uh, Australian Securities Investment Commission, ASIC, issued policy guidelines on how to conduct capital raising through an ICO in a legal and compliant manner. And it provided three categories, basically uh, uh, categorizing tokens as either utility tokens or uh, fund-like, such as an MIS-style uh, token or a outright security. So with that, what has emerged is that for a small country like Australia, we actually have far better regulatory clarity around something like blockchain or, or crypto-based capital raising versus a huge market such as China. And more recently, South Korea has also banned um, ICOs. And, and both the US and UK are, um, un until very recently in the US, not very favorable, or I would say even hostile towards ICOs. So this has created an interesting dynamic in what we call regulatory arbitrage. In other words, in a promising blockchain company uh, where the solution is literally in the cloud, it can be anywhere, it's inherently borderless, they will pick the, uh, the, the jurisdiction that makes the most sense for them to set up, aim to conduct a legal and compliant ICO wherever possible, and use of funds, which will typically be raised in crypto anyway, uh, to fund their operations anywhere else in the world. And that's a very interesting dynamic. And I think this really plays to Australia's advantage. We have assisted a number of uh, companies out of countries, including China, to reincorporate as an Australian company and help them conduct legal and, and compliant ICOs. So I think this is, uh, yeah, we've got something going good for us thanks to our regulators for a change. Yes, it appears that the world is taking notice. Uh, I mean, look, I, I sort of describe, um, you know, in layman's terms, to put it very simply, we're kind of like what we were in the Sydney Olympics year 2000, if you recall. We're, we're a pretty small nation, but we punch well above our weight. Now, we've since... In sport, we've become very, very average, but in blockchain, we, we're certainly punching above our weight and the, the world is taking notice with some very successful projects coming out of Australia. And you know, uh, uh, the fact is we're, we're a country that is, we're trusted uh, when it comes to business. Um, you know, you're not going to come to, you, know, you do a project and you try and get a project out of Russia. No one wants to touch it. No one wants to touch it. Certain other parts of the world are coming out of, you know, coming, coming out of those areas. It's like, no, thank you. When it says Australia, it's like, ah, instantly you can tick a box of, okay, well, jurisdictionally, we can trust them. Yeah, we know those guys. <laughs> yeah, we, we're cool with that. They might be a bit strange and speak a bit funny, but we're good with that. <laughs> the regulatory environment is uh, it's evolving here, and it's interesting to see. Yeah, I, I, I think that point cannot be uh, overstated. Um, I, I, I mean, the reality is we are extremely bullish and, and very, very optimistic about Australia's near-term blockchain and, and uh, to a greater extent, fintech prospects as a nation. So we have one of the most highly respected regulatory regimes in the world, in some regards, even ahead of uh, the US in, in some aspects. 
Uh, we have a very, very stable financial system. We have a very uh, strong economy, the only OECD country uh, that has had 26 years of continuous economic growth. Uh, that's unprecedented and a world uh, record holder uh, amongst the OECD. So when countries or when and, and when companies look at Australia, they go, well, this is a country that isn't likely to have a coup or a sudden policy reversal or, or a complete market um, collapse uh, anytime too soon on its own. So, and it's, you know, a, a, a not too small financial markets and capital um, base. So if the regulators are very friendly towards certain things being done, for example, ICOs, um, actually, this environment is making Australia one of the most desirable destinations to launch this style of capital raising. We're uh, we're very much the country that you want your son or daughter to marry. We're uh, we're stable, we're trustworthy, <laughs> we're secure, and we're friendly, and it's always sunny. <laughs> and yeah, we're the- regulatorily innovative. Yes, we are, and we, we like we we see criticism sometimes, especially when we, you know the most recent thing around the ATO and how they want to tax crypto. The, it seems that the whole crypto community came out and said, "Tax it on when it comes back into dollars." Makes sense. The ATO has the ability to do that, but the ATO went, "Yep, we listen to all of your ideas, and we're going to tax crypto to crypto." Well, good luck with that one, ATO. I, I wish you all the best in, in pulling that off because uh, <laughs> I really don't see it happening. But we'll do the best that we can to comply with whatever rules you've set. We're all still scratching our heads. So, welcome to the show. If if you want to have a chat about that, Australia and the ATO. Um, so, you know, the, 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 that's the general public's perception of things. Um, that what, what happens to, to corporations, what happens to the general public, as we know, are different things. And the infrastructure for uh, myself or an individual trader and investor is very different to, uh, you know, that of somebody who has got some fairly decent sized resources to work within an ecosystem that Australia is still developing. We are. We're not there yet. Uh, we're very much open to the idea and you know, watching countries like uh, South Korea, seeing how they're working forward, what sort of stance they have on things. You know, we are a country that has that trust, as you say, and we've, we've got a lot of potential uh, to, to grow in that. Now, before uh, I have you go, Victor, I want to ask you a question that I think is very important. I ask every guest uh, on the show this same question, and it's comparing the internet, the dot-com boom days, to that of blockchain. Now, we know that the internet kind of came around. I know it's been around for a lot longer since 1993, but that was, that was the year we sort of pegged it to actually being used, commerce was being done, and um, it became less of a strange thing to uh, to us uh, back then. And 2000 was a subsequent year where we saw the extraordinary growth of the sector, and then obviously we saw the bust. Now, relating that to blockchain, uh, where do you think, what year do you think we would be in between 1993 and 2000 right now within this space? <laughs> oh, that's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> There is a saying in the crypto community that a day in crypto is like a year in the real world. Uh, I, I somewhat sympathize with that uh, sentiment. So I, I was telling people uh, beginning of this year, actually, that um, uh, in, in my personal perspective, uh, the crypto blockchain ecosystem is sort of like 1994 in the internet era. I will now fast forward that to uh, by... <laughs> Um, August this year, I would say we're probably somewhere in the vicinity of between 97 to 98. I think there are some really strong boom years ahead, and then there will be an inevitable major crash. 
before the industry starts to become much more uh, mature and, and probably consolidated. But I think that the opportunity for blockchain to disrupt traditional ways of doing business is unprecedented, uh, absolutely uh, comparable to, to the advent of the internet in terms of its downstream uh, impact on society. So we think that the, uh, the biggest roller coasters are yet to come. I hope you're right. I, my sentiment is much aligned with yours there, Victor. And um, I mean, I'm really interested in hearing everyone's responses. Um, you know, so I get to speak to a lot of different people around the world and some in uh, you know within this community, and it's it's interesting to hear the different the different areas that we are. You know, in May, most people were saying sort of 93 to 96 latest. Uh, as we move into the latter part of the year, the second quarter of the the, the year, we we sort of see people. Um, uh, oh, sorry, third quarter of the year, uh, start to see people you know, talking more about the later, uh, later stage. 97, 98 is still fine. It means we're getting closer to hopefully the next run up where we do see some phenomenal things occur. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Victor. I mean- this show is proudly sponsored by coinspot.com.au with the largest range of cryptocurrencies anywhere in the Australian market. With an updated verification process, you can now be verified using only your driver's license or passport within seconds. You can instantly deposit funds and instantly start buying and selling your favorite cryptocurrencies in under five minutes. CoinSpot are giving away $10 worth of free Bitcoin for each verified user once they make their first deposit. Just go to coinspot.com.au forward slash BTC123. Views are of the advertiser, not TraderCobb or the audio presenter.